Well, the House of Commons held a moment of silence today for victims of the mass shooting in Buffalo, New York uh, over the weekend. MPs unanimously condemned the violence. It's just one of those news stories that you that you see. I, I remember seeing it come off. It was on Twitter and thinking, I can't believe this has happened again. Ten people were killed, three others hurt, uh, when a white gunman carrying an assault rifle, wearing body armor, streaming it, showed up at a supermarket in a majority black neighborhood in Buffalo and started firing. Police say the killings were motivated by racist hate. It's being investigated as a federal hate crime. The shooter allegedly inspired by other similar acts of terror around the world over recent years, including in Charleston, South Carolina, and in Christchurch, New Zealand. Today in Buffalo, the community continued to grieve and voice their anger. Garnell Whitfield is a former Buffalo Fire Commissioner who lost his mom, 86-year-old Ruth Whitfield, in the attack. By someone that just full of hate for no reason, for no reason. It's very hard for us to, to handle right now. You know, we make no apologies for our suffering and our pain. You can see it. Yeah. We, we're not going to apologize for that. But we're not just hurting. We're angry. Yeah. We're mad. Yeah. This shouldn't have happened. That's Garnell Whitfield, a former Buffalo Fire Commissioner. His mother was killed uh, on Saturday in that attack. 86-year-old Ruth Whitfield at a grocery store in Buffalo. Well, U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas says violent extremists continue to pose one of the most significant terrorism-related threats in that country. Joining me now is Elizabeth Newman. She's a former Department of Homeland Security official and chief strategy officer for the Moonshot team, founded in 2015 to find solutions to confront and stem the rise of violent extremism. Thanks for your time tonight. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Elizabeth, I, I know from where you sit, these incidents aren't always shocking that they occur, but they, I, doubt, I have no doubt, are never less uh, angering and disappointing. Uh, just what do we know about what's happened or what happened in Buffalo over the weekend? You know, it, it is really disheartening. Um, I've been working on domestic violent extremism since I rejoined the uh, Department of Homeland Security back in 2017. Um, and since I've left, which was 2020, I, I've continued to try to raise the alarm. Um, it, it is a growing problem for us in the United States. Um, this is our eighth year of a very sharp uptick of domestic terrorist activity, according to CSIS. Um, we have had on average 31 people killed a year uh, by domestic terrorists, with the lone exception of 2020 when... Um, we were all stuck at home. So there was not as many mass gatherings for people to, to be killed. So uh, that combined with this um, very uh, dark white supremacist ideology that that honestly has been around for millennia in some ways, um, that uh, there's a Jewish cabal of elites that are trying to cause harm on society. But the latest iteration of it um, came about in 2011 with the um, horrible uh, terrorist attacks in Norway. Um, and we've seen a number of attackers uh, be inspired by that, that attack. Um, and the more, other more prominent one that people might remember, it's more recent, was in Christchurch. And in the United States, we've had several attackers be inspired by those two primary events. And, and in Buffalo, we see the attacker reference the Christchurch attackers manifesto, reference other bits and pieces from the Norway attacker. Um, and it's this 
uh, theory that the white race is going to be eliminated through a combination of low birth rates and immigrants uh, coming into the country and um, that it's not just happening by, uh, you know, organically, that there's actually a, an orchestration behind it, that, that this is uh, the, the demographic change that is very real. There is demographic change in our country, um, but that it's by design and the design is to uh, rid the, the, the world of white people. Um, so it's this, uh, it, there's pseudoscience to it. There's, I almost don't want to give it airtime because there's just so much of it that is evil and disgusting. Uh, and yet increasingly prominent, not only in the extreme uh, conversations online that are they're advocating for violence like this this guy in Buffalo was spending time in but it's also infiltrated our um, mainstream political dialogue in the United States lately and and that's very concerning because it's creating on ramps for people to be open to the more violent extremism that the Buffalo attacker represents how does the radicalization take place because I understand that it is not unlike radicalization of other uh, extremist ideologies. Uh, but it, but there is a pattern here. And I think, I believe we've seen that pattern repeat itself uh, during this horrific incident over the weekend. Yes, um, you're correct that increasingly all um, extremist radicalization um, there's, there was a shift. Uh, if you look before 2009, most radicalization occurred in person. There might have been some uh, exposure through some form of media online. Um, but between 2009 and 2016, it completely inverts. And the preponderance, overwhelming majority of people that are radicalized do so online. Now, they may end up with in-person, in-real-life contact. That still happens. There are groups that meet. There are uh, movements in the United States uh, for various ideologies to get together. Um, but increasingly, uh, we have seen, not just in the United States, but globally, most radicalization takes place online. And if the Buffalo Attackers Manifesto is to be believed, which you know we should always take with um, caution, that is his presentation of what he wants the world to think about him. So uh, there's an investigation underway, we will learn more. Um, but but certainly he uh, purports that he had no contact with anybody, and that everything he believes and he was espousing in his manifesto came from his engagement in online uh, spaces, particularly 4chan is mentioned as, as one of those places where he uh, was exposed to the, the most evil and darkest of, of these conspiracy theories. Elizabeth, this, as far as we know, I gather, this was a, a well-planned attack. Yes, uh, we believe that uh, he modeled his attack off of the Christchurch shooter and to uh, some extent also um, some of the other uh, uh, white supremacist attacks that, that we've um, talked about already. Uh, and he was live streaming the event on Twitch, which the Christchurch shooter also did. Uh, he was uh, planning on going to two locations at least and uh, ended up getting stopped at the first location. The Christchurch shooter also went to two mosques when he was uh, targeting Muslims. It was targeted in that he was not indiscriminately just shooting people. He wanted to shoot black people. And he makes it very clear in his manifesto. He looked up the zip code 
in his state that had the most black people and chose a location where he knew it would be more likely to inflict harm on black people. Um, so there was a lot of discussion in his manifesto about the types of gear he was going to use, the way he was going to enter uh, the the location. It, it clearly was planned. He reportedly was there the day before doing that um, kind of scoping out activity. And um, he he makes it really clear in his manifesto that for him that the, there was the motive behind this was to rally other people to a similar call of pushing back against um, the invasion of immigrants and and people that are not white. So in in large part, the violence is really to get attention to his cause, uh, which is a, a hallmark of terrorism, right? It's like the violence is almost secondary. Your purpose is trying to get everybody to pay attention to what is wrong and try to get other people to go out and carry out similar attacks. Was this, was this a prevent, were there warning signs here? Was this a preventable attack? It's a really great question. Um, we now know a whole lot about how people radicalize, why they radicalize um, compared to say 20 years ago, shortly after 9-11, when we were all struggling with trying to understand how, how human beings could do this to one another. Um, and I do think that we are now at a place where we can develop capabilities that are, that are locally based that will prevent crimes like these. However, in the United States, those prevention capabilities don't exist today. Um, there, there are a few places where they're piloting them, uh, and there's some a little bit of money that's been put forward, um, and it's something that needs to scale rapidly. If you look at Germany, they're spending a billion dollars over three years to uh, invest in prevention of uh, hate crimes, racism, and domestic what we call domestic violent extremism. They call right-wing extremism. Um, they, they are taking it seriously. They're actually looking at increasing what they've already committed to. In the United States, we're spending about $30 million with an M uh, compared to Germany's $1 billion with a B. And, and I'm not talking about law enforcement resources because law enforcement is a, a, certainly an important part of um, trying to keep us safe, but law enforcement's overwhelmed. And in the United States, we do not have uh, laws that allow us to arrest people because they say something uh, indicative of violence. Um, we can have conversations with people that say that and try to evaluate whether they're mentally well, whether um, they might pose a threat, but we can't arrest people because the First Amendment protects people to have ideas and speech that we might find abhorrent. And so in the United States, we need alternatives um, to intervene with people that are not law enforcement based, but allow us to try to come alongside those individuals who are contemplating uh, radicalization or who are radicalized and are contemplating violence to try to stem the tide of this uh, epidemic of violence we have in the country. I'm speaking with Elizabeth Newman. She's a former Department of Homeland Security official in the U.S. and chief strategy officer for the Moonshot team founded in 2015 to find solutions to confront and stem the rise of violent extremism. We're talking about the attack on a grocery store in Buffalo over the weekend that left 10 dead in a predominantly African-American community. We're learning more about the suspected shooter and what may have motivated it. It certainly has links, we believe, uh, to white nationalist extremism, uh, a growing problem uh, both in the U.S. and elsewhere. After this, we'll talk a bit more about what needs to be done to try to prevent attacks like this from happening again. Stay with us. 
Speaking with Elizabeth Newman, she's a former Department of Homeland Security official and chief strategy officer for the Moonshot team, which was founded in 2015 to find solutions to confront and stem the rise of violent extremism. We're talking about the attack on a grocery store in Buffalo over the weekend that left several dead, targeted, uh, a targeted attack on an African-American, predominantly African-American community. Uh, The suspect has left a manifesto that outlines his violent extremist views, white nationalist extremist views. Elizabeth, what I mean... You've said already that the sad, the awful part about this is that most experts in the field, such as yourself, believe it's just a matter of time before another one happens. How do you stop it? That's the hardest part of being in this job is when you when the news comes in about these attacks, you knew that that it was coming and it's heartbreaking that we weren't able to stop it. Um, We have to keep trying. And I do think that uh, increasing our ability to intervene with people both offline and online where the radicalization is occurring um, is the key to reducing this. I don't think we will ever fully stop it, um, but right now we don't, we certainly don't have enough law enforcement personnel in the country to address the number of people that meet the definition of extremism, um, which is, uh, simply, when you believe that some another group, the out group, poses a threat to your way of life, to your success or survival, and hostile action is therefore necessary. Right now in the United States, extremely polarized, lots of voices saying that it's time to go uh, even uh, more entrenched, harder against that other that other group that you're against, um, and we have poll after poll after poll that. Uh, indicate anywhere between a third to 40% of Americans think that violence may be justified to achieve their political aim. That is the definition of terrorism. Now, not all 30 to 40% are going to go do something. It's usually a very small percentage that actually will take a step and go commit an act of violence. But at that level, it is just insurmountable for law enforcement to to prevent all of the violence. So we have to be doing more in the prevention stage. We have to be shoring up vulnerabilities of of uh, of people that, uh, for some reason, are taken by the rhetoric that they need to commit an act of violence, that their way of life is being threatened, um, and and there there is hope in that the studies that we we have funded over the last 10 and 15 years demonstrate that we can intervene with people and move them to a healthier mindset where they don't think that hostile action is necessary. If you look at Europe and, and what places like the UK and Germany have done, um, they have seen a significant success. We just haven't invested in that in the United States and we're woefully behind given the scale of our problem. In Canada, we often talk about guns. We often talk about the the existence of guns in the U.S. Uh, where, from your point of view, does that play a role in these attacks? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I um, recall when I was serving at uh, DHS asking after one of the many attacks that happened on our watch, um, what what needs to happen? And, and one of the my colleagues at the FBI kind of in disgust was like, I don't know what we can do here. Um, there's such easy access to guns. And I don't think that the Congress or, or anybody in the political system is ever going to fix this. Right. And, and so there is this 
uh, reality that um, are the easy access to guns, the prevalence of a gun culture in the United States, and the politicization of that gun culture um, is is a key factor in why there's so many more lives lost in the United States compared to the rest of the world. And I think from a professional standpoint, while I fully would love to see some sort of gun control measures, and I think you can do that and still be consistent with our Second Amendment, um, I, I just don't have a lot of hope in our political system right now to be able to actually effectuate change through some sort of uh, change in the law. And that's why I, I spend a lot more time and focus on prevention, because I think that is something that we could uh, get codified, get funded, and start to rapidly build and start to uh, make our communities healthier and prevent more violence. But certainly, if you gave me a magic wand, <laughs> that is certainly one of the things that I would do and, and make guns less accessible, especially to those who have uh, espoused a desire for violence. There's, there's no reason um, if somebody's ideating about violence that they should be able to easily access guns. And yet understood, of course, this is not an American problem. This is a global problem. We see it here as well in Canada. Mm, very true. Um, and uh, the is the idea ideology of violence or the ideology of hate towards others absolutely is global. Global. The the access to guns in the United States is um, probably the the key distinguishing factor that leads to us having. Uh, more attacks and higher lethality in those attacks compared to um, some of Canada and, and uh, European partners. Elizabeth Newman, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.